Hello and welcome to Forensic Minds, a podcast aimed at those studying to be a forensic psychologist and early career forensic psychologist, or those that are interested in the area of forensic psychology and are curious as to what it actually is forensic psychologists do. Now before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I myself would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My name is Madison Riachi. I am a doctoral candidate at Swinburne University and the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science. I'm also the Australian Psychological Society College of Forensic Psychologists National Student Representative. Now I have to admit, here at Forensic Minds, apparently we, we just like to keep you guys on your toes and I very falsely advertised our guest for today. Now it is not Dr. David Kerno, but never fear, he will be joining us for the next episode of Forensic Minds. However, today we have a very special guest once again. We have Dr. Chris Lennings. Now I will tell you more about Dr. Lennings in a second, but before I do... I would like to introduce another co-host. So, Miriam Yunan. Miriam is currently a Master's of Forensic Psychology and PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales. Her research is examining the superficial cues that jurors rely upon when evaluating expert evidence. She is also currently completing a placement at New South Wales Justice and Forensic Mental Health Network with the Community Forensic Mental Health Service. Miriam is passionate about how forensic psychology can contribute to improving the lives of those involved in the legal system, as well as the ways in which forensic psychology can actually improve the legal system itself. Miriam is currently the student representative for the APS College of Forensic Psychologists, New South Wales Division. Now, Dr. Chris Lennings, I can finally introduce our guest for today. Dr. Lennings is a respected academic, having been employed as a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney and Queensland University of Technology teaching psychology and in the Faculty of Law at QUT teaching forensic psychology. He is a clinical and forensic psychologist with 30 years of clinical experience, having worked in a variety of government and non-government services as well as private practice. He has provided reports for courts at all levels and tribunals in New South Wales, the Northern Territory, Western Australia and Victoria, and has also provided reports to the family courts in Wales in the UK and New Zealand. Chris conducts assessments for private solicitors, legal aid, Aboriginal legal aid, children's legal service, the Department of Community Services, the Department of Juvenile Justice, and has also undertaken assessments in the family court. His chief areas of research interest include forensic psychology, the treatment and assessment of substance abuse, violent and sexually violent young offenders, youth suicide, child protection, and the interface of psychology and the law. He has presented his work nationally and internationally in conferences and workshops and has more than 100 public publications in related areas. Chris has been an editor for two journals and is an editorial consultant for Australian and international journals in clinical and forensic psychology. He is a member and has held executive roles of relevant professional bodies, including clinical and forensic colleges with the APS, the Australian and New Zealand Association of Psychiatry, Psychology and the Law, 
and the Australian and New Zealand Association for the Treatment of Sex Abuse. As you can tell, Chris has years worth of experience in the area of forensic psychology and it will be such an interesting discussion with him today. The focus of the discussion will be about Chris's experience as um, an expert witness in the various different courts which he has um, been a part of in his career. So I will pass on to Miriam and Dr Lennings. All right. So, Dr. Chris Lennings, um, I saw in your bio that you're actually been practicing um, for 42 years. Is that right? That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. So, could you, you know, tell me about what your career progression has actually looked like? Well, um, okay. So, I started in the day long before registration was required, and long before there was really much of a sense of you know, profession. Uh, professional psychologists as we have today, the uh, profession has really evolved over uh, the period of time. Uh, it's almost half a century that I've been mm. involved in it. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, I started off uh, doing my undergraduate in the 1970s and got fortunately offered a job part-time uh, tutor in around about 1977. Thought mm-hmm. of doing thought then of an academic career. Uh, However, I got waylaid. I went to a job interview that uh, my wife was attending at a drug rehab. Back in those days, hippiedom was still part of the world and job interviews were group affairs. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I turned up just a support person for my wife and they asked a couple of questions. There's a whole bunch of people, about 20 applicants so for different positions. She was attending for counsellors, but they were also applying. They were also advertising for uh, psychologists, Quinn Sykes. I was at the time engaged in a master's program in Quinn Sykes. Mm-hmm. So um, they asked these questions. I heard the Quinn Sykes answer them, and I thought they were rubbish. Um, and so <laughs> I, no, not having applied or anything, I just put my oar in. Um, they rang me up a day later and offered me the job. There you go. So that was how I started, almost totally by accident. And uh, I began in drug rehab, which, of course, oriented me a little bit towards the forensic field right from the beginning. Uh, I only lasted there eight months because I was too young, uh, too mm-hmm. naive, uh, and I was too far away. Uh, and so I uh, scurried back into clinical psychology and worked as a child and family psychologist for about 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, went into uh, juvenile justice and then went into academia, wanted to do a PhD, went into academia, worked in academia, but continued to work as a clinician and did a lot of work in the forensic area as a clinician Mm -hmm. uh, until 1996 when I came back to Sydney. I'd gone to Queensland to start my academic career. In 96, I thought I'd come back and work as a um, child psychologist because mm-hmm. that's uh, what I knew most, and that's where my main connections were in Sydney. But I got offered a, uh, to do a gig for a, a mate who was asked to do an assessment, and he couldn't do it. He knew me from juvenile justice days. So I did. Uh, he solicited a likely report. got another one in my own name. Um, and uh, before I knew it, I was suddenly a forensic psychologist. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, while I'd been in Queensland, I was quite interested in forensic psychology. I'd worked for the Faculty of Law at QUT uh, and I'd helped form the Forensic College in Queensland. And I'd always retained a very strong interest in forensic psychology, so it wasn't totally by accident. 
um, that I, I got involved in the field. And I've been working in that field um, ever since. Um, it's been a very kind uh, area of work for me. It's been interesting, mm -hmm. exhausting at times. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got to meet lots of really interesting people and some people you don't really want to know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I've seen a fair bit of um, stuff uh, and I'm looking forward uh, to my retirement, having been practising that since 2009. Not so effectively, but I'll get mm -hmm. there. You know what? I, I would imagine, you know, if you sent me your CV, it would probably be 30 plus pages based on what you've told me. 33 pages. Really? That's even, actually, that's even more well, impressive. Yeah, I'm impressed. Yeah, well, they, you know what? Like, that's, to be able to sum that up in three pages, I'm actually very much impressed. I mean, so like you were saying, so since 1996, you've been practicing as a forensic psych. Is that mm. right? Yes, right. And, and so what does a typical day for you look like, I mean, now as a forensic psychologist doing what you do? Okay, so obviously I'm in the final days of my my practice uh, mm. so I'll, I'll talk about what a typical day uh, was like up until maybe 12 13 months ago mm -hmm. so I my, as a forensic psychologist I was also involved in running a practice so we right. had a, uh, with some of my colleagues uh, we had a quite significant clinical practice in Sydney mm -hmm. uh, around the country we employ about 40 people in one form or another mm -hmm. sizable yes yes um and so part of my work involves uh responding to emails and uh, giving people advice on questions they might call in for reading the work the reports that they might write and giving them ad hoc supervision or formal supervision a typical day uh, would also involve me uh, undertaking assessments uh, mm -hmm. If they were family assessments, they would be all day. So the average assessment takes about six, six and a half hours for mm -hmm. a family assessment. Wow. If it's a criminal matter, it's a couple of hours. If it's a tribunal matter, it might be also a couple of hours of face-to-face -face work. However, mm -hmm. if it's a family court or a children's court matter, there may be three or four days of reading uh, involved mm -hmm. in that one day of assessments. And if it's a tribunal matter there may be a fair bit of reading and if it's a criminal matter typically it's less less reading unless it's a serious criminal matter or an extended supervision order or something else like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i mean are parts of your days also made up back you know when you were you know full-fledged mm -hmm. practicing court appearances and yeah so I, I would tend to get called into court because i do a lot of civil work Mm. called into court in roughly one in every three cases wow. in civil work. In criminal matters, you get called about one in every 100. Uh, oh. But uh, in, in civil matters, um, you'll get called quite frequently. And uh, I would typically be in court in one form or another, once a week or once a fortnight. And, uh, of course, with COVID, a lot of that has been by AVL, but in the bad old days most of the time you had to appear in person mm -hmm. that's the problem because the court might be in Dubbo or it might be in Canberra or Newcastle um, uh, in Western Australia I've, I've prepared reports uh, for the court of uh, the family court of Wales in the United Kingdom for uh, New Zealand and for three or four states uh, around uh, Australia uh, for, unfortunately the uh, Welsh never saw fit to fly me 
uh, to Wales. <laughs> um, nor, unfortunately, did the uh, uh, Kiwis. But um, I've, I've had to travel around the country. Uh, and there is actually quite a lot of travel involved in this matter because you, you think of Sydney uh, and you think, well, everything happens in Sydney. But in fact, uh, there's a huge amount of need in rural and regional areas. And yeah. uh, we, uh, we have to meet that. Now, as with COVID, of course, that's been... Um, easy with ABL, but in, as I said, prior to COVID, there was an expectation that you would attend in person, either in jail or in a, a solicitor's mm -hmm. office or office you might hire for the day, uh, mm -hmm. and also to attend court. So there's a lot of travel involved. There's a fair bit of court work involved. There's a liaison with uh, solicitors. Sometimes uh, solicitors will ring you and want to ask um, about strategy and approach, for instance, that they may think that this is an assessment that could be best done by a psychologist or perhaps a psychiatrist, and you mm -hmm. might talk to them and work out what you think is the best way. Yeah. There's a lot of necessity in the business, and I can't stress this enough. There's a lot of necessity in the business for forensic psychologists to be well networked with other psychologists and psychiatrists because there will be often referrals to them which they are not um, expert in and they need to have a referral network that they can refer out to. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, a solicitor will continue to come to them because the solicitor will know that if you can't do it, then you know the best person for it. Right, and, I see uh, what you mean. And, and as a result, your reputation is enhanced, not by taking everything that comes, but by being an expert and assisting mm -hmm. um, lawyers in finding the best um, uh, person, if it's not you, uh, for the job. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting point there that you were saying. Like, I mean, that's an actually really good piece of advice in terms of being well networked so that if you can't, for example, provide that expert evidence or that report, you mm -hmm. can defer it to someone who is able to do so. So, I mean, in your experience, how did you come to sort of becoming comfortable or um, confident in providing expert evidence and testimony? I said, I'm, I'm fortunate that I was brought up at a time before this compartmentalisation. So my training was in neuropsych as well as clinical psych, also in mm -hmm. community psych. And at various times, I've been a member of four different colleges uh, because of my interests. Uh, I, so I've also been an academic for many, many years, for a good couple, well, more than a couple of decades. So mm -hmm. I've been well aware of information and uh, knowledge that's probably a bit outside the average practitioner who often feels they don't have time to increase their knowledge base. Mm -hmm. So I'm fairly comfortable with a very broad range of referral questions, but I'm also equally comfortable when I don't know what I'm talking about to ring someone and get some advice. And it's not just other psychologists. So I'll, I'll talk to barristers, I'll talk to psychiatrists, I'll talk to uh, other psychologists uh, to... Uh, understand the situation. It may be that uh, the case is beyond me, in which case I will refer on, mm -hmm. or if the case is within my range, but I'm not like hugely experienced, the best way to get that experience is to uh, contract with somebody for some supervision mm -hmm. around uh, to build your skills um, through using the uh, supervision and PD process. Mm -hmm. There are some areas that I don't um, work in uh, because I just don't feel that um, I, can, I can do it confidently. But most areas, uh, 
I've either learnt about or had exposure to or have the capacity to learn about um, mm -hmm. with appropriate supervision can do the job. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, is it, was it that first time in the 1996 or 1997 that you actually first did an assessment and then provided a report? Was that the first time? No, no, no. First time I ever did a court report mm -hmm. uh, would have been around about 1981, 82. Uh -huh. um, uh, that was in the context of being a clinical psychologist uh, uh, because there weren't forensic psych Forensic psychology didn't exist back then. Mm. Uh, um, what would happen is that probation and parole or uh, docs, as they were affectionately known then, um, would have a matter. And uh, there were very few private psychologists. When I started working as a psychologist, working for the government, there were only five uh, private psychologists in practice that I knew of. Mm -hmm. so, uh, most psychological services were run through the government service and particularly through the community health service. I was, I was a clinical psychologist working in, the, uh, in a community mental health centre and they would send you these people because there's nowhere else to go. So I did probation and parole reports, pre-sentence reports, I guess you'd call them, uh, uh, because um, there was a need for additional work that the probation and parole officer couldn't do. Uh, you know, cognitive testing or uh, uh, some element of psyche, you know, psychological personality assessment that they felt that they needed an extra uh, zip with. So it was back, back in, in, in the early 80s that I first began to do that. And as I said, I'd always had a, uh, a kind of uh, ease with forensic matters because I'd started off working in a drug rehab where everyone yeah. had a forensic history. Uh, mm -hmm. I was not at all phased by that. I know that a lot of psychologists are a bit spooked by the need to provide a report or a bit spooked by the idea of attending in court. It has never been an issue for me. Right. And so it seems like the re from 81, the rest was history and like you've basically provided thousands of reports and you were saying in our earlier chats that you've supervised equally a similar number of reports. Yeah, at least a similar number of reports over the years. I began supervision, formally supervising people, uh, probably around about 1987. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at, at that point, um, there, there was no registration board in New South Wales. There was in Queensland, but there, and I think in Victoria, but there wasn't one in New South Wales. Right. So it was just a matter of people wanting to be supervised. Um, so I, uh, I began providing supervision sessions to people, men, because I had some specific skills, mainly in the area of drug and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in 1990, I went to Queensland, and of course there they had a registration system, and I became involved as a, a supervisor for the registration board up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you know, over the years, it's uh, probably three and a bit decades, uh, you just get to see a lot of people and you get to read a lot of stuff. Well, I, I, I would assume so, for sure. And I mean, I guess it's fair to say that you've stuck in it long enough, you, you enjoyed the work. And so what was the most enjoyable, what would you say would be the most enjoyable aspects of actually, you know, writing these reports or providing expert evidence or, you know, testimony in courts? Funny enough, the most enjoyable part of that, well, look, that's a really complex question. The most enjoyable part for me of having been a forensic psychologist is working with other psychologists, particularly less experienced ones, and um, assisting them developing their own skills mm -hmm. and assisting them 
in uh, uh, developing, getting into uh, more academic pursuits, so combining academia with clinical knowledge. I've always been critical of academics who teach uh, without clinical knowledge, and I'm somewhat, somewhat critical of clinical folk who avoid academia and avoid the kind of a scientist aspect. We are scientists. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't stress enough that I've got a commitment to that. So I really enjoyed that part of it. The other part about it, when it's really odd, is that although mostly I've worked as um, a, an assessor over the last two and a bit decades, and the reason for that is I'm deaf, uh, and um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I use a cochlear implant to hear. I went through a process long ago where I didn't have a cochlear implant and basically lost my hearing by about 2010. And it was obvious that I wasn't going to be able to do therapy anymore because if I, I did, um, I'd be complained about because I couldn't hear them. You know? Right. So uh, that was a, an issue. Uh, so I mainly do uh, assessment work, but even in assessment work, you can make a substantial difference to a person's life. And I'll give you a, a story about this. So for some years, mm -hmm. I've seen this revolving door uh, woman who had a she had borderline personality disorder, she had drug and alcohol problems, she had parenting problems, she also mm -hmm. is continually getting in trouble with the law. Um, and I must have seen her five or six times and over the years talked to her and uh, I tried to get her into DBT programs. Eventually one stuck and uh, she got into a, a DBT program and got a really nice therapist. Uh, um, did it? Did the hard yards? Did eighteen months of hard yards and came out the other end. And I'd, I'd I'd assisted her, but she'd been in a number of court cases. The uh, and uh, the DPP were quite opposed to her, and wanted to put her in jail, and uh, uh, that, that didn't seem to me to be a very helpful solution for her problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and the consequence was that uh, she got better. Uh, she was able to get her child back eventually. She had stable accommodation. Uh, she became non-symptomatic for borderline personality disorder. It took about you know, a long time for that to happen. Impairments mm, mm. reduced, she stopped using, uh, and she became a decent person uh, who then became a mentor and ambassador for the Salvation Army. And uh, uh, you can actually do good work. You, even as a forensic psychologist, working with people who other people decide um, uh, rubbish, uh, you can actually do good work and make a difference that would be very hard to make in any other context. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that's, and I've had lots of experiences like that over the years. I've had some ones that go the other way, but mm -hmm. I've had lots of uh, those kinds of experiences. And, and that, that, that can be pretty good to know that uh, you have been sensitive enough and um, expert enough uh, to be part of a team because obviously her solicitors were there as well and also the treating experts, uh, but to be mm -hmm. part of a team that's actually changed and made someone's life better. Well, that's actually, I mean, that's actually a really fantastic story, especially since, the, you know, general people that do come through the system have, you know, come from really difficult lives and, you know, change does take a really long time. And even from an assessor standpoint, that's really thoughtful to be able to see that that work is also meaningful because you know a lot of people think of the therapy as you know meaningful work but of course sometimes there is that assessor standpoint that makes those recommendations to begin with and um, provides those linkages to the services that ultimately help the person get better 
I guess I'm interested in the other side as well, which is the challenging aspects, because I would assume there are definitely some challenges to being an assessor and being an expert sort of in the fields you decide to testify to. There are heaps of challenges. Mm. There's some real risks. Um, uh, for instance, if you look at the group of people that I went through university with back in the um, late 70s in my master's program, I think on, um, well, there's one other, uh, we're the last surviving uh, on the ground psychologist. So psychology uh, has its costs and forensic psychology in particular has its costs and precarious traumatization and the sheer frustration of working in a system that can be quite insensitive to people's needs and people's backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, it's really uh, at times uh, problematic and I've been known to get a little grumpy, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, need a holiday, uh, but uh, these kinds of um, uh, challenges are there and you do have to remember that when you're working as a forensic psychologist, even in the civil domain, uh, you're working with people who've done dreadful things. Mm -hmm. Some of them are dreadful people and mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it can be... Um, very problematic uh, to get it out of your head. So uh, there's, you know, I mean, there's obviously ways you can do it. You can drink yourself into oblivion if you want, um, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, it can at times be difficult to get it out of your head. And that, they're the costs. And if you do therapy, and I've done, uh, I've seen literally thousands of people in therapy as well over the years. Uh, and you're sitting down and you're talking to someone and you're living, you know, you're using empathy and you're using uh, your capacity to understand how they're going. Um, uh, you take on some of their issues. Um, you, know, you can do good work, but you also uh, can experience the psychological pressure of uh, at times feeling like you failed people or that you can't help them or that it's you know, too difficult or too late, those kinds of things. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of that kind of stuff that happens in the business as well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, how has those challenges, you know, shaped you as the psychologist that you, that you are? How do they have changed me? Yeah. I'm a lot tougher. Um, mm. I used to be a shy, sensitive person. I'm still shy, but I've got a really hard skin. Mm. Uh, for instance, we're talking about expert evidence, okay? So one of the basic rules about court is mm. that it's not personal. But geez, it can feel personal. Mm -hmm. It can feel really personal. And uh, people get up there in court and they doubt your credibility and they doubt your intelligence and they uh, 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 you know, tell you that your case is, that your, uh, case is rubbish or your report is rubbish and that, that five other people have uh, seen this client and come to totally opposite opinions and how is it that you could possibly think like this? And mm -hmm. that, that aim... Um, is to uh, make it uh, so that you get defensive uh, because once they make you defensive, uh, they've won. And one of the things about good uh, expert evidence and being without a good forensic psychologist is having that tough skin, uh, being calm and reflective, hearing what's being said, not getting defensive, not taking it to heart, and not getting grumpy um, mm -hmm. what's, what's happening and looking like you are a calm, non-defensive, sensible person who can provide assistance to the court. Mm -hmm. That's a fair amount of mental effort on, right. on the part of the expert to, to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And I guess you're like sort of tapping into 
you know, sort of very logically into the next question, which is sort of, it's sort of your way of extending advice to, you know, current forensic psychologists who mm. are probably being asked to provide expert evidence and testimony. Mm. What do you think would be some important considerations for them to consider when they are being asked to provide um, this testimony or the report? Okay. Well, look, I've spent uh, probably the last 10 or more years running around the country, running uh, workshops in expert testimony and giving evidence. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I've got a few resources up my sleeve. Um, and I'm now going to pinch some of the information from those resources in answering this question. Mm -hmm. so, um, some of the things that you uh, need to uh, uh, think about is the one that I've already uh, said right up the front. Um, mm -hmm which is do not get defensive. One yes. of the things that a lawyer will do, um, well, there are two things a lawyer will do. First off, the lawyer may be nice to you. So there's a really famous barrister called Ian Freckleton who works out of um, Victoria, uh, but he's a serious, serious uh, barrister. He's the editor for uh, the journal Psychiatry, Psychology of the Law, has been the president of Anne's Apple, God knows how long. Um, and he'll, he'll, he's, his advice to lawyers about cross-examining experts is be nice to them until you can get nothing further from them. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's on for young and old. So the uh, advice I would give to psychologists is do not feel vulnerable. Understand that the court is not your preferred area. You've got little control over mm -hmm. the language and the rules. Do not get involved in a competition between yourself and the cross-examiner. One way that a cross-examiner will destroy your credibility in court is by making you defensive, by getting up your nose mm -hmm. and get a bit huffy and respond, then your credibility goes down the tube. There's only one person you have to worry about in court, and that's the judge. Everybody else is there for theatre. So mm -hmm. as long as you keep yourself focused on the judge, you will be quite okay. Yeah, look, there's a number of things that barristers can do to manipulate you. I mean, some barristers can be excessively nice uh, and they can say things like, it's, isn't it the case, Dr. Lennings, that X and Y? But Lennings, you're an expert in this field and you know a great deal about this and you'd agree with me, wouldn't you, that X and Y is the case? Yeah, they sound mm -hmm. like a nice here. Listen, listen to the question. Forget all the funny business. Listen to the question. What are they actually asking you? So long as you have good listening skills, so long as you do not allow yourself to get fatigued or carried away by anything, so long as you focus on the question and you can remember the answer that you gave to your previous question, uh, you'll, be, you'll be fine. It's, there, there's a lot, far too many psychologists, I think, uh, watch crime fiction. And uh, they see all these horrible things in the United States with you know, lawyers pulling out chainsaws and crossing us what else in court. And you sort of think, oh my God, but none of that happens in Australia. Okay? In Australia, we don't have histrionics. You know, we don't have that kind of theater. In Australia, barristers can't approach the uh, witness. They can't go up to the witness and sort of wag your finger under their nose or yell at them or anything else like that. It's a decorous court. Mm -hmm. And so long as you're able to maintain yourself calmly uh, and remember 
that it's a decorous court. And if you're getting stressed, you can always ask the, the judge for some um, uh, time, that kind of stuff. Remember the glass of water. This is the one story I tell everybody. <laughs> when, if, before COVID, you go into court, there's a water jug and a, and a glass. Um, if you get asked a question and you feel there's a, there's a pressure for you to answer, don't. Pick up, mm. take a sip, put the glass of water back down. Give yourself that time to think. As if, so long as you don't respond to the pressure, so long as you stay in control of yourself, you don't need to worry about not having control of what else is going on around you. That's an interesting, that's another interesting piece of advice because yes, I've definitely observed cases and I've seen the glass of water there. And I've actually seen quite a few instances where experts haven't actually taken a, gl a glass of water and they've answered quite quickly and um, it's become, you know, an interesting show. And so it's, it is, you know, a good point that something to watch out for when providing that evidence in court, especially is that ability, that pressure and our tendency to actually lean into that pressure in ways that we wouldn't if we weren't under pressure. Yeah, I think, I think um, uh, lawyers, uh, particularly if you're a brain shiny new psychologists, they, you know, they're interested to see how far they can um, push it. Um, it's human nature. Uh, mm. And you just you know, learn, uh, you know, learn how to keep a poker face, uh, learn how to keep your voice calm. Mm -hmm. uh, without the water, when you fill your glass, only fill it up two thirds of the way. And the reason for that is because you might be a bit nervous and caught in your hand might shake. And it feels mm -hmm. awful when you spill water. So only fill it up two thirds of the way. Uh, my hand can still shake when I'm in court, even though I'm not particularly nervous. Uh, you, know, you, can get, you can find reasons to get a bit anxious and, and so you have to be uh, aware of how to counteract your, your own anxiety, you know, breathing mm -hmm. exercises, giving yourself time to respond, having a sip of water uh, and, uh, as I said, paying attention to uh, the question. Barristers will ask questions in, um, well, typically what will happen is a barrister will prepare the cross-examination and mm -hmm. they'll have a book or something else like that that they've prepared. Now, uh, you've got to think about evidence as what they call strands of a cable. So you're giving evidence and uh, you, may be, you may have written a report about somebody having an intellectual disability, executive functioning deficits and, uh, you know, some some impairments, and you think that's the critical issue. What the barrister wants to do is tease some of that out, but they've got other things they want to tease out. And what they're going to do is they're going to ask you a few questions about that, then they're going to ask you a few questions about this, and they're going to come back to that, because A, they're looking for any inconsistency in your answer, which mm -hmm. they then use to reflect on your credibility. B, they don't necessarily want to give away to you uh, the aim of the cross-examination. So ducking and weaving between questions is a way in which they can hide from you where they're going. Uh, C, it just makes good common sense from the perspective of the barrister um, to uh, leave you guessing as to um, what's going on. And uh, uh, what you need to remember, and this is actually really hard, but it's a, it's a very useful skill to have. Mm -hmm. What you need to remember is the answers you've given to the questions, three and four questions back. So I've been involved in a court case once where a barrister asked me a couple of questions and I actually gave a stupid answer to one of them, kicked myself afterwards. Mm -hmm. and then three, then he, he, he got the answer he wanted, which was me being stupid, and he went off into something else. And then he came back. No, another question, gave me an opportunity to apologise to the court 
for um, having responded to that previous question in an unclear way and clarifying it. So I was able to remember my answer and fixed it up. Um, this actually was very aggravating uh, to the barrister um, at the time. Uh, and uh, uh, if you have an ability to remember uh, the whole of your evidence, uh, and that can be hard because you're pretty tense. Your you know, brain tends not to focus too much on, on the whole of things. Uh, then you mm -hmm. perfectly right. I was fortunate in that when I was trained originally in psychotherapy, I was trained as a Kleinian related to psychodynamic psychotherapy. We weren't allowed to take notes in mm -hmm. therapy. What we had to do was remember every word the client said. And we would have to, at the end of the session, go out into the room and write down what he said, what I said, what he did, what I did, that kind of stuff. And I was trained um, to have a, uh, a good recall of the uh, minutiae of what took place in the therapy session. And that kind of capacity to attend uh, to what you're doing and what you're saying is what you really need to uh, develop as a good expert witness. Remembering you're only in court for an hour and a half mm -hmm. because typically what happens is there's breaks. So uh, yeah, you might start court at 10 and there's morning tea at 11.30. You, re you go back at 12, you adjourn uh, for lunch at 1, you come back at 2 and the longer sessions between 2 and 4. So um, the uh, um, uh, court technically, you know, typically happens in chunks. Uh, and you, you know, get rest time and time to collect your thoughts and that kind of stuff. What would you say are, you know, features of good expert evidence? Well, can I just go back? Um, mm. the, the issue about good expert, a good expert is understanding what the judge wants. Right. So what the judge wants from an expert is clarity. So you don't mess around, not too much jargon, just uh, sensible clear descriptions of things so i'll give you an example there was a i was yeah. in the, this this is the matter of this a woman i talked about who had the borderline personality disorder okay the, the dpp board and a psychiatrist and uh, the psychiatrist was um, um going on about things um and brought up the you know fight flight uh mechanism uh and then it was my turn to give evidence and so my job was to explain to the jury um uh what the fight flight uh meant uh, and what I did is I just used the opponent process um, uh, approach. So in your own opponent process, uh, if you exhaust a neuron, then the opposite the neuronal circuit comes into play. The best way to clarify that for a lay audience is to say, look, imagine you're in the South Pole. Someone digs a big hole in the ice and chucks you in, and then they pull you out fairly quickly. Uh, what you'll experience coming out of this frigid water is incredible warmth. Uh, it is the opponent process. It's actually the flooding of the body with endorphins, but um, mm -hmm. it's the opponent process. So when you're trying to explain behaviour, the ability to use a, um, an analogy that makes sense to people, that takes technical language and puts it into an experience. I also used, in another matter, a very similar case, except this time I talked about an, an ad that was on TV where people had um, beer in a fridge, I mean, in a, in a rubbish bin full of ice and the guy mm. holds his hand in and pulls the beer out. So that's exactly the same kind of process. You put your hand in, it's really cold, and you pull it out, it feels good. Partly because you've got to have a beer, but partly because you can be part of it. 
So you need to have clarity. You also need to have field experience. It is regrettably the case that uh, age does matter. Uh, and uh, whilst the judge will um, still think of your training uh, and your experience as important, uh, what they like to know is that you actually have been there. So if you're talking about somebody who's got a drug and alcohol problem, what they like to know is that you know something about drugs and alcohol, that you've got some relevant experience mm -hmm. in the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, they also want you to be impartial. Uh, this is the whole issue about not being defensive. It's your job to assist the court, not to assist your client, not to assist the defence or not to assist the DPP. Your job is to assist the court. And the more that you look like that, uh, the better. I recall one judge saying to me, because uh, I was asked a question, and I said, look, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And the judge said, hallelujah. Finally, an expert who admits he doesn't know everything. Um, <laughs> you've got to be able to um, not try and be all things to all people. And the other thing you really need to have is what they call fact familiarity. You need to know the issues in the case. Right. You need to be aware of what's going on. You must take time prior to going and giving evidence to read your report to look back over the notes, to look back at the material that you may have been sent um, so that you have uh, a familiarity with the facts and you're not going to end up by being surprised when somebody says to you something that you should have known about all along but just didn't bother to look up. Mm -hmm. So if you can do all those things, um, you're going to impress the judge and then you've just got to remember that you mustn't do what I'm doing now, which is give a mini lecture. So when you're in court and you're asked a question, you give a succinct answer. Right. You, if they want to know the theory behind it, they'll ask you. But if they don't want to know the theory behind it, don't assume that they do. Right. Be succinct. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because I do, you know, I am, we're sort of moving towards that point where succinctness and being concise reflects like a deeper understanding of the topic. Yeah. Yeah, I think the worst thing that a forensic psychologist can do is feel out of their depth and so therefore try to make it seem like they know what they're talking about by talking about what they know in another area. Mm -hmm. That's not relevant to this issue. So, you know, there's not much point in, in that person being there as an expert if they're unable to provide the uh, clarity that the court requires. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, you know, you've been think in this field for a very long time enough for a lifetime and i mean what are you you know for like early careers like to are looking to sort of follow the foot like the steps that you've basically taken I mean, what do you see as areas of improvement for forensic psych um in particular when it comes to the, the idea of expert evidence and testimony well obviously the critical issues for forensic psych and giving expert uh, testimony is knowledge so uh, ensuring that an expert maintains their expertise. I, I get very distressed when I speak to um, other psychologists about how little they read. Um, I get very uh, uh, distressed when I hear people say, you know, they uh, haven't got uh, their points up, their PD points up, and they're looking for some webinar or something that they can uh, put on while they're cooking spaghetti um, so they can get their points up. We're scientist practitioners. That is the raison d'etre for our profession. It's why we get paid. Uh, and 
the advice I would give everybody is maintain your knowledge base by reading, uh, attending conferences. Maintain your skill base by attending workshops and uh, supervision. And I think if you do that, if you continue to grow your knowledge and continue to grow your skill, you'll become a person that other people will want to mm -hmm. um, uh, have involved in their matters. I think that's uh, the first important point. The second point, of course, is that forensic psychology is facing a bit of a crisis in Australia because of the reduction in training opportunities. But that reduction in training opportunities has been to some extent matched by the uh, ability to gain a lot of experience and skill through various PD programs that have been offered uh, by the Forensic College, uh, mm -hmm. and, but also by other organisations like ANZATSA and ANZAPL. And I talked earlier about networking. So if you're going to be a good forensic psychologist, don't be content to just be a member of the APS or not even that in some cases. Um, mm -hmm. You need to network, you need to have professional identity, you need to engage with those professional organisations that will uh, meet your uh, PD needs but also your interest needs. And the ones, for instance, that I'm engaged with are the AFCC, which is the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, which is important if you work in the family court, mm -hmm. uh, and ZAPL, Australian New Zealand um, uh, Association of Psychiatry, Psychology and the Law, which is just important for almost everything, and ZATSA, which is to deal with the treatment of sexual abusers and the assessment of sexual abusers. So uh, working out what organisations are necessary for your networking and your training will be a way of gaining um, support, skill, knowledge and validation for the work that you do. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what else I would say about um, uh, where forensic psychology should go. I think forensic psychology is, I mean, psychology in general is becoming more and more corporate. It is uh, moving away from the cottage model that uh, it was in the 80s, the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, uh, much more subject to regulation, accreditation and those kinds of things. Uh, so I think making sure that you work with colleagues who are like-minded and supportive and that you can trust so that you can develop a kind of community of um, uh, a small community of uh, fellow clinicians who uh, can uh, support you and can also uh, assist you in you know, getting referrals, managing referrals, or managing all the paperwork. Got oh, the paperwork. Uh, so all of these things, um, uh, I think, are necessary uh, and not feeling threatened. If you're going to be a good psychologist, you're part of a team. If you're in the forensic field, you're part of a team. You must be comfortable with cultivating cross-disciplinary links. Uh, mm -hmm. And you need to uh, be uh, open to the attitude of mind that other professions might have in law the word counselling has quite a different meaning to therapy. We mm -hmm. use counselling and therapy as if it's the same word. But in all counselling is giving people advice. So mm -hmm. you need to be able to understand what is the language that's being used. Uh, and you won't do that unless you have these linkages um, and can uh, gain the knowledge, um, gain the experience uh, that you need from these cross-disciplinary connections. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, like sort of extending on that, 
I guess I'm curious about whether there's any advice you had wished you received back in your early days. <laughs> no, is the short answer. And I, uh, <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why I spend so much time, why I like to think of myself as spending so much time and mentoring and assisting uh, people coming behind me is because I didn't. I had to learn pretty much the hard way. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, as I said, there wasn't a recognised field of forensic psychology when I first started. Uh, and uh, there wasn't even registration uh, yeah. in South Wales. So uh, things were pretty um, uh, laissez-faire and you only really worked out uh, where you were going when you made a terrible error and someone brought it to your attention. I, I think that uh, uh, you, you, you've got to be um, uh, open to being mentored if you possibly can be. But in, in my case, I had some good clinical mentors from time to time. I was fortunate that I worked in a child uh, and family mental health service and there was a real commitment there to supervision. But that was really supervision about doing child therapy, not, not about forensic work or assessments. And I always had an interest in assessment, I always had an interest in the more investigative aspect of psychology. And they basically just, I mean, I just had to develop that on my own until, as I said, I, I uh, formed a community of like-minded psychologists around me. We were able to, in a sense, mentor each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, that, you know, sounds really amazing. Um, you know, I think the, like your listeners would be really interested in what you're doing next. What's happening next for you? What's happening next for me is, well, I'm, I'm living this word called retiring. So um, <laughs> what, what's happening for me is seeing myself slowly fade away. Uh, and uh, uh, in enjoying that. But also, uh, as I said, I still contribute uh, to the profession. Uh, and uh, I've, been, look, I've been really fortunate. The profession has uh, not only given me a good you know, salary, income, and some nice friends and stuff like that. I've got honours. You know, I've got a couple of awards from the Forensic College. I noticed. I've got a, uh, uh, received a medal, the Order of Australia. I've, I've been very fortunate in that... Uh, by um, not just being totally uh, selfish and self-focused, but by contributing, um, it's been a, um, a good experience for me. And I don't intend to not contribute, um, mm -hmm. even as I slowly earn less money. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's that interesting, you know, I've learned about this interesting concept of like, it's called generativity, which is, you know, as you sort of, mm. you know, develop further in your field and you sort of achieve like that epitome of experience it becomes that idea of you know sort of giving it back to the field in various ways which can include mentorship of the younger generations in the field so that that improvement can continue so i can see that there's gen I'm, I'm seeing that there's a passion on your end to continue at least that well there is i mean you've got to be careful here you know i can be a bit i can be a bit narcissistic and a bit uh, egotistical so but don't be too nice about me um <laughs> I, I i think that um i mean i do have a fear i, I can see forensic psychology uh as a standalone or not as a standalone but as a as a um special discipline becoming very stressed um as uh becomes more and more expensive to try and run forensic master's programs and as other professions uh, broaden into forensic areas um, <clears throat> and it's going to be harder 
I think, to her a clear identity as a forensic psychologist, which is an odd thing for me to say because I actually came out of a system where there was only clinical psychologists and organisational psychologists uh, and uh, uh, all these specialties developed over the years. And so I'm probably seeing it going back to where it was. Mm -hmm. But at being a generalist psychologist when the knowledge base is small is a whole different ballgame to being a generalist psychologist when the knowledge base is huge. Right. And the knowledge base today is huge and it's very hard to be a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. You know, as we're sort of coming to the end of our talk together, you know, I'm sort of wondering because, you know, you've had experience in having questions asked of you plenty of times. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if there's a question I haven't asked that you'd be interested about talking to. Oh, okay. You mean you want me to confess something? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, I was so used to not volunteering. It's one of the rules of a forensic psychologist. You're in court and they, you know, someone will say to you, uh, and what else, do you have anything further to say? And no, I don't. I don't volunteer. Mm. Uh, so, uh, it's uh, no, it, I, I'm used to responding to questions uh, simply because I've got this fear of foot and mouth disease um, nice. that I have capacity to uh, to to uh, contract if I'm if I'm allowed to say my piece. I think the thing I would say though, if I have to go to sort of answer a question that I haven't been asked, uh, is that it's going to be necessary at, at some point in the future for uh, forensic psychologists to make a, um, a, 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 um, a decision about uh, professional uh, development, professional horizons. Uh, and I think it's very important that psychologists recognise that they may start off as a forensic psychologist or they may start off as a clinical psychologist or a neuropsych or even an org psych, they may not end that way. So mm -hmm. I've been fortunate in my career that I've worked as an academic, I've worked as a clinician, I've worked as a counsellor, I've worked in running community centres, I've worked uh, in research and social policy evaluation, uh, I've worked right across most of the areas you could possibly work in in psychology and each one of those areas has enriched how I work in the next one. Not being afraid to retool, not being afraid to expand your horizons is something that I think uh, is uh, very useful to uh, psychologists. And you know what, I'm really glad you've volunteered that information. I actually think that's really good advice to sort of ex like keep doors open, expand horizons, because they just add to the person and the professional that you end up becoming. So yeah. I wanted to thank you. Thank you, Dr. Chris Lennings for, you know, actually, even volunteering to actually have this talk, talk today. Um, I'm sure our listeners would really appreciate it as I think they will find that they inevitably come to that circumstance that they have to one day provide, you know, expert evidence and testimony. So thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. And that concludes episode three of Forensic Minds. A big thank you to Dr. Chris Lennings for joining us on the podcast. We very much appreciate hearing about his experience and having his words of wisdom as well. Now, please join us next time, episode four with Dr. David Kernow, looking at his career as a forensic psychologist, in particular, his time on the adult parole board.